In our continuing study of the Gospel of Luke, we now see Jesus having performed many great miracles, astounded people, not only with His teaching, but with His power. And if you're in opposition to Jesus, you're trying to come up with some sort of a way to spin doctor this whole thing, to try and really reduce the impact that He's having on the community that is all about them. This is where we, we pick it up. So in uh, Luke 11, starting in verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, or basically caused a man to be mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Now you think amazed is a good word. It's not always a good word, interestingly, in the, in the original language, thumazo. It could mean that they are in awe in a positive sense, or that they are really kind of exercised a bit by this fellow, and they have a lot of emotions surrounding him. And it seems as though it's a purposefully ambiguous word used by Luke here, because you'll see a bit of a divide among the people, even in the face of the power of God displayed through Jesus Christ. Now, as a side note, to, to have someone mute speak is a very real and clear fulfillment of, of what it is that Isaiah speaks of. And Isaiah does a, a lot of description of the Messiah. And one of the great hallmarks of the Messiah is that the, uh, the, the tongues of those that are mute will be loosed. And here is exactly that fulfillment. And so if you're a, a member of the Pharisees or Sadducees and you're worried that you as the religious leader among the Jews are about to be supplanted by this whole new, new wine, new cloth, new, new experience that Jesus is bringing in, well then the defensiveness is going to, to rise and thus their, their amazement was more of a bit of a, a, a deep concern. But even as he starts to fulfill the very signs of the Messiah that you think they would be thirsting for, at that very moment, it says, but some of them said, by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on some of our older translations, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Beelzebub or Beelzebul, uh, is, it's, it's a word that means the, the Lord over the other demons, or Lord of the flies is, is how it comes down to us in some cases, but it is another way of just saying Satan. And so those who are detracting Jesus' great work and power are basically saying, yeah, he's got power, but where's that power really coming from? Maybe his great power is the power of Satan. Others tested him asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, that's always a bit unnerving, Imagine that going on with you right now. The person turns to you and says, I know your thoughts. Come on. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they'll be your judges. But if I drive them, drive out demons by the finger of God. That's such a cool phrase, isn't it? 
If I drive them out by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Amen. I'm going to stop here for a second, although we are going to read down just a little bit longer. But as we look at this, one of the real clear messages that begins to come out from this passage is that Jesus is, for sure, calling us to take a stand. Now, as he takes a stand, as he does all throughout his ministry, he takes a stand that gets noticed. It gets noticed so clearly by all that are around him that they begin to find a way to, again, detract or, or even dismiss what it is that Jesus is really doing. And here's really, I think, what ought to be convicting to us. Are we so imitating Jesus that those that aren't so fired up about Jesus coming into their lives have got to find a way to explain away your power your good works, your righteousness. Do they become so unsettled by an intimate interaction with the body of Christ that in order to dismiss the power of Jesus, they've got to do a little spin doctoring on you, just as they did that to Jesus. When uh, Deb and I were out in Charlottesville, we had... Uh, just such a fun impact, you know, out there on University of Virginia's campus. And it was interesting that because there was such an impact and people were coming to know the Lord and being baptized and, and, and really uh, the idea that people are really following Jesus and there was a campus ministry that was really doing that, uh, up rose detractors just as quickly as the, the, the great works of God rose up. And one of the things that we were doing at the time is we began a project through the, uh, the food bank in Charlottesville because at that food bank, while they had food to spare, people had to come to the food bank to be able to grab that food and, uh, again, uh, take care of their household needs. We recognized that this was not a place with any sort of public transportation in Charlottesville. So we went to the food bank and thought, is there any way that we can kind of partner with you and maybe... Uh, as, as you take the calls from those that need the food, we can actually be your, your arms and legs and be able to just take that food out to people who, who would need it. Uh, and, and so we did. And matter of fact, it, it increased the demand on the food bank so much that we ended up then raising money every week just to be able to even pay for all of the extra food. And, and this went on and went on. And matter of fact, it's called I Was Hungry out in Charlottesville. It still goes on to this very day. And the church is stalwart in, in that enterprise, and they continue to be able to make a, a really big difference. And there's really something really special when the door opens to, to a home where somebody's looking for this. They can't even get out to get it. And you arrive with, with two big grocery bags of just what it is that they need. Very encouraging. And really, we weren't promote this is probably the most i've ever promoted it in the entire time that it's happened but when the the university of virginia wrote a, a bit of an article specifically on debbie uh <laughs> who by the way graduated from their med school but anyway they wrote an article on debbie in, in that you know debbie had been studying the bible with with a few of the women there and really calling them to true discipleship there of course was a a, a defensive response to that, which then prompted this article, which was, you know, a huge full-page article uh, on the front of their paper. But one of the things that they said was that they go and they practice these these works of service to the community only to try to get, get a squeaky clean image, because what they're really about is is not so clean. 
You're kidding me. Like, oh my goodness, I mean, can, can, can we not do anything w without somebody trying to find a way to detract from it? But it, but it happens all the time. It may be that you're, you're generally trying to love somebody, reach somebody, serve somebody, and there's no way that you can deny the fact that, wow, you really are doting on that person, serving them, considerate, spending time there. So since you can't detract from that, what do you do? Well, you say, well, you're doing it out of bad motives. You're just doing it because you want them to know Jesus Christ. You got me. Maybe there is a little bit of that going on too. Uh, but, but there is that, but there's also, we can't help but really live out Jesus Christ if we're really in alignment with the body of Christ and, and doing His great will. These things are going to happen. We are going to try to love and connect and all of that's going to happen. So, by the way, as you seek to go after that and people begin to impugn your motives, be like, well, amen. Amen. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. And at least I'm finally doing enough that it's causing people to have to come up with some sort of an explanation for why Jesus, in some small way, has entered into their personal space. And we've got to keep doing that. We've got to keep making Jesus known. Whether it's in your school, your neighborhood, your workplace, shipyard, wherever it is, we have got to make sure that Jesus is known. If Jesus were in your school, your shipyard, your neighborhood, you know he'd get noticed. You know he would cause some sort of discomfort. And for those that were uncomfortable in the midst of that, they would try to explain away the greatness of Jesus. So for us, think through that, even right now. What could you do to make sure that Jesus gets noticed? Through your life, through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, through the work that you get to do for the sake of the gospel. I, I know that the Holy Spirit, as He dwells within you, is trying to convict you of something. Yeah. If not, be, be, I think, rather concerned, if that's the case. But I know that He is trying to convict you of something. Let's not let this power of the Holy Spirit really trying to prompt us and it would kind of goad us in a good sense uh, in a great direction to, to fall to the ground. Let it be that this is precious. This is a precious intervention of, of God the Holy Spirit really, really sending us in a direction that is trajectory changing for the people's lives uh, that, that we will actually interact with. Amen. So, and, and also as we read on in, in this very same passage, Jesus sees that their logic in trying to say that, you know what, it's by Satan that you are beating up Satan and that you're able to do all of these things. And Jesus doesn't even have to, like, you know, perform a new miracle right now to silence them as he has done in, in various places in the gospel. Instead, he's like, whoa, whoa, hold on now. Can, can we just have, like, a little lesson in logic for a moment here? I mean, are we all that crazy? That we don't understand the law of non-contradiction. Can, can we sit down and really appreciate that? And so Jesus schools them on the basics of argumentation. The basic of premise, premise, conclusion. And, and how not to lose your mind in just trying to win an argument so that you just lose all sense of what it is to be logical in the process. And so as he does so, he, he makes it very clear that, all right. If there is a country that is wanting to be strong, do you think that country 
would foment unrest and start a civil war within that country? Is that not just going to just wreck that country? I mean, in the end, that country's not going to be stronger. That country's going to be whack. And by the way, as an apology for, for last week, I used the phrase whacked, meaning to say whack. And for some of you that are really trying to work on your grammar, I am so sorry that I would have led you astray by using whacked as the description rather than just simply whack. So thank you for that and, and, and really you know, having forgiveness for me in the, in the process of that. But th- th- this is, this is the, the, I think, the clarity of what Jesus is trying to bring forth. Is that, look, there is no way that if you want to have a household that is going to be strong and flourish, there's no way that divorce is going to actually help out those kids. There's no way that, that uh, infidelity between the two of you is any way going to bring you closer. If you want to see flourish, you see what's supposed to flourish in that home, it doesn't come by turning against one another. And so in the various synoptic gospels, that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they, they use the different illustrations here of a house divided against itself, a kingdom divided against itself, a city divided against itself. And, and even think of even cities like Ferguson that are undergoing so much right now. And I mean, there's no way that that city is in a moment where they're thinking, all right, let's think about how we can expand what it is that we're able to offer to our citizens. What new initiatives can we put into place? That city is not thinking about that at all right now. They're thinking about how can we hunker down and be able to take care of the division that has really resulted from all of these incidents that have gone on in our, in our uh, recent current events. And, and they're really thinking about how we just to, to be able to repair and, and Jesus uses this same logic that, again, if, if you think that you can explain away what I do by the power of Satan, well, then it makes no sense at all. And, by the way, if you're trying to claim this explanation, well, then what are you going to tell to your own people that are practicing exorcisms? We see in Acts 19 that there are those that are, that are actually Jewish that are continuing to be able to drive out demons. And so I'm sure there, there were, as Jesus mentions here, those that were able to do so. And uh, are you going to go to all of them, maybe some of those that you regard in such uh, lofty ways, and say to them, oh, by the way, uh, thanks for the you know, driving out of that demon of my daughter, but you're satanic. But I mean, he, you're, you're not, there's no way you're going to undermine the ugly, destructive work of Satan by the power of Satan. And... And in the end, Jesus says something interesting because whether, whether those Jewish exorcists are doing it by the power of God or not, Jesus is not really saying. He's just trying to put, them, put himself in the shoes of the Jews and, and say to them, what are you going to say to your own people as they try to do the same things and even succeed at it? And, and whether that's happening by God or not, Jesus is not in a sense validating. But he does say something interesting and it's an Old Testament allusion. And in verse 20, he says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a a clear allusion to Exodus 8. And in Exodus 8, Moses and Aaron, they were trying to come before Pharaoh and convince him that the power of God is alive and well and is about to be brought down on this kingdom. And so the, the plagues begin, and, and before even the plagues begin, Moses takes his staff, he throws it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. Well, the 
the ungodly sorcerers in Pharaoh's court do the same thing. They throw down their, their staffs and they also become snakes. Moses then gobbles up all of their staffs. Sweetness, right? Of course. But, but, but nonetheless, they were able to replicate in a, in a counterfeit way what it was that Moses did. Later on, when Moses was able to turn all the water into blood, well, likewise, their magicians were able to do a similar feat. But as things continued to progress, at some point when they were no longer able to replicate what it was, that the, the power that Moses had, those very magicians became the judge of Pharaoh. And those very magicians went to Pharaoh and they said, take heed. What is going on here through Moses? This is none other than the finger of God. And what it is that Jesus does? It is none other than the finger of God. Jesus' work in your life Arranging time and place, as the De Sensitis said a little bit earlier on. <laughs> that very work, the very fact that your parents became Christians, you, you sit here now, the very fact that we were disrupted in our everyday life and were able to come to know the gospel, that's nothing less than the finger of God that has affected our, our very walk. And amen for that. But, what Jesus is, is saying, though, with great clarity here is, well, let me, let me read on. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. So not only does Jesus take a stand that's clear, he also takes a stand that's clear. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> but he takes a stand that gets noticed, but his stand is not wishy-washy. There is no neutrality in the way that Jesus takes a stand for God. He doesn't come about it and say, oh, I see, you guys are feeling a little bit of... Um, kind of having me stepped on your toes because your followers are coming over to me. That's not what I wanted to do. I mean, after all, don't all roads lead up to God? And if people want to be able to know God through your path, well, isn't that nice? And if they can know God through my path, wouldn't that be nice as well? Jesus says no such thing. But by the way, everybody says exactly that today. And if there's a part of Scripture right here that ought to challenge you and call you to rise up and become countercultural. It is this very section that whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus is doing is astounding. He is going into the strong man's house. He is fully armed. The strong man is. And who is this a reference to? To Satan. And Satan in all of his power is described not just in a house, but the word that's used here is more like a citadel, more like a castle that, that uh, Satan has, has um, in a sense, fortified his work through. And he is ready through these fortifications to wreak havoc on all our lives. And by the way, that is exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to entice you with his lies. He wants to seduce you with his pleasures. And he wants to take you down a path that is complete destruction. It may seem enticing for just a moment, but in the end, 
it is a train wreck. And then after you take a step down that dirty direction, he then gets you further down that direction with his fortifications by saying, not only does he tempt, but he accuses. And he says, all right, now that you've done this, you're damaged goods. Do you think you can ever enjoy full fellowship with all those folks again? No way. They're clean and nice and righteous. And you're dirty and filthy and nasty. Well, by the way, we all, we all go undergo that all the time. Right. And, and if you don't know us, and you don't know the depth of our nasty, well, sit down and we'll talk. It's, it's not because we pulled ourselves up by our own righteous bootstraps. It's only because we saw how filthy we were and allowed the grace of God to completely transform us and allow us to even desire things that would have been foreign to us under any other circumstances. But nonetheless, Satan has got power. It, there's no doubt to it. The way that Jesus describes this is a deep fortification with a strong man that is fully armed, ready to be able to take you down. But Jesus says... But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The picture here is Jesus walking up to that citadel. There is Satan ready, fortified, ready for the attack. And Jesus kicks down the door, busts it on open, vanquishes all of his troops, and then takes the strong man, throws him to the ground, strips him of his armor, humbles him before all, and then says, I'm going to take whatever it is that you thought that you had. And Jesus has done that. Amen. He has triumphed over the satanic powers by the cross. Take a look at Colossians 2, 13, 14, and 15 when you get a chance. But that is exactly what he has done through the cross. He has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan, and Satan is on the ground vanquished by Jesus. Which means that now we have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Amen. We are no longer constrained in some sort of way that is irredeemable from evil, from the flesh, from the world, from the evil desires that rage within us. We have every opportunity from a God who is for us, not a God who is against us, a God who is for us, wanting us to be fully redeemed, sanctified, justified, washed and pure. This is the great work that Jesus has done. It's fantastic work. But then Jesus says, whose side are you on? Pick a side. Stop the vacillating back and forth, waffling. Just pick a side. And, by the way, it would probably be smart to pick the winning side. We know that, but when we have discussions with people, at our workplace, on our ships, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, the conversation doesn't sound like this, does it? No, it sounds like, well, so long as we all love God. Well, so long as we all are growing in our spiritual journey. That's what we hear every single time. Why? Because nobody wants to pick a side because picking a side is a little bit uncomfortable. And it's what postmodernism rails against. Postmodern, oh, how dare you be so intolerant and pick a side? We're a tolerant group. Look around. We are tolerant of people. We don't know what color anybody is anymore. I mean, we're, we're, we're that kind of, you know, blind to, to, to intolerance to people. But we are not tolerant of ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We are not tolerant of anything, anything that undermines 
the power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we should be okay with that. But postmodernism, which is the, 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 the philosophy of our age, it demands a tolerance of all ideas. Can you take that stand? Can you take that clear stand? Or would you prefer to kind of just be shifty and not have any conflict and have some sort of a peace-peace where there really is no peace in your life? You know, it's that very thing. It's not a new idea, by the way. People have always, you know, kind of shirked away from confrontation. It's why Jeremiah says, you can uh, write this down, Jeremiah 8, 10 through 12. From the least to the greatest, prophets and priests alike, they all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. But they will fall among the fallen, and they will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. This is the very talk of neutrality. Can we find a way? Let's be Switzerland. Let's not take sides. Let's just be nice. Let's just have peace. Peace, peace, everyone says. But, truly, there is no peace if you're trying to make peace against conflicting ideas, again, that go against the beauty of a God who sacrifices His own Son because He loves you so much to be able to be redeemed by Him. I, I love some of these quotes. Uh, Eli Wiesel, who, who was a uh, prisoner, uh, um, he was uh, an Auschwitz uh, survivor. I don't know it was Auschwitz, but, but it was a World War II um, survivor among the Jews. And he said, we must choose sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor. You want to help Satan? Don't choose a side. Just half-step it through life in some sort of a gray area, neutral zone. C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Uh, Dante, who wrote Dante's Inferno, had a few choice words for those who remain neutral. The darkest places in hell are reserved for those who maintain their neutrality in times of moral crisis. If you want to uh, stoke your fear of the Lord, uh, Dante's Inferno is always a good read. Uh, but why? Why such uh, intensity? Because everywhere in our human nature, we recoil against really taking a clear stand. Never more than now is the pressure of society upon us to avoid clear stands, to avoid an exclusive claim to truth. How dare we? Well, how can we not? If... Jesus died so that we could have reconciliation. And there are other ways. Well, then why in the world did Jesus die? Why was he flogged? Why was he hung on a cross? Why did Father God allow his son to be so tortured if there are other ways? If I can just gain enlightenment through Buddha, if I can just gain righteousness through Islam, if I can just you know, have, have a better round of, of karma through some other system, well, then why in the world is the cross even an option? That would be a horrific God that would allow His Son to die if there were any other options. 
And is it such a nasty thing to have your son die for you, for you, for you, for me? And to say, by the way, and this is the way through this beautiful sacrifice that you're reconciled. Is that such a terrible thing? It's so clear. It's so generous. It's so intimate. It's so amazing. It is so motivating. And for that to be the exclusive way, hallelujah. Take a stand. Take a clear stand. And finally, starting in verse 24, when an impure spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, through a desert, seeking rest and it finds, doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's an interesting picture that Jesus gives. And he says, all right, are you all in? All right, if you're all in about what we're doing, you're not waffling, but you're all in. Make sure that you're not just all in about emptying your life of the stuff that is so clearly egregious in the sight of God. Repentance is not just a removal. We repent and turn to God. And when we are reborn of the Holy Spirit, yeah, we put off our old self, but at the same time, Ephesians tells us that we put on our new self. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a radical change. It's not just a putting off, but it's also a putting on. And so when Jesus redeems you, when the Spirit of Christ convicts you, when you are brought to a realization that my life is on a path that is not in alignment with God, I want to take a stand, and I want to take a stand for Jesus, and you go to Jesus, and He redeems you, He doesn't just empty you of your sin or of your massive debt as a result of that sin. That's not all that grace does. It's not a transaction of subtraction. It is a transaction also of addition. And there's beautiful addition. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift of positive attributes that are given to us. The Holy Spirit washes us, sanctifies us, but also justifies us and fills us. You sit here now, not an empty vessel. You sit here now, filled, and here's praying, to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Later on in Ephesians when Paul says, Hey, you know what? Holidays are here. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But he doesn't just leave it at that. Okay, be warm and well fed. Have a good holiday. Remember, don't do that. No, he doesn't just leave us with a what not to do. It's not just a vacuum that God is trying to create in any one of us. Instead, He is looking to fill us to overflowing with glory. And, and don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, is then followed in Ephesians 5.18 by, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you were made new, you were given, unlike anything that any Old Testament person could have ever dreamed, you were given the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. 
to flow from within you like streams of living water. To be able to fulfill the great will of God. Not because you are adhering so carefully to the do's and don'ts of the law, but because within you springs the very Spirit of Christ. And when you let your flesh get out of the way, He takes you on a journey, a beautiful roller coaster ride, a time of thrills and excitement of doing the will of God. And so our lives are not just filled with emptiness, our lives are filled with wonder, our lives are filled with significance, our lives are filled with purpose. We're here to do nothing less than change the world for Jesus Christ. If that's not what's going on, if we're not gathering, then we might as well be scattering. If we're not actively filling, well, then we're in danger of being an empty vessel and the vulnerability that that provides. But you're not. You're not. You've been given the precious power that raised Jesus from the dead. And perhaps, you're, well, yeah, I have, but I don't really see that. How, you know, all we have to do, and we've been talking about this among the singles and a couple of the other leadership groups, is let's just get our flesh out of the way and realize how much we've been filled to overflowing by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power to love. To have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what flows from your life. The power to speak, the power to be bold, the power to reach out, the power to love deeply, the power to encourage. It ought to be that our interactions with one another, when the flesh gets out of the way, are so more deeply loving. That we connect with one another. Because what does the flesh do? In our inhibitions, we think, uh... I don't know if I really want to give full expression to the Holy Spirit here. Well, that's the gift you've been given. Your life is meant to be amazing. Not one that is squelched because my inhibitions of the flesh don't really want to have that go on. I'd rather be neutral. I'd rather have a conflict. I'd rather be insignificant. I'd rather have nothing go on. That's just the flesh that is putting a cap on the great gift of the Holy Spirit. He has come... He has beat down the strong man. He has arranged time and place. He has redeemed you. The old is gone. The new has come. And he has given you his gifts. My goodness, let's not in any way stifle that gift. Because we got some inhibitions that we would rather hang on to. Rather than just pull that, pull that back and watch the Holy Spirit work. And as Jesus says all of this and he's bringing it to them. And they're like, whoa. He took down the strong man. Whoa! We, we, we've been filled with, with, with the gifts of God. Whoa! This Jesus is, is working by the very finger of God. Then a person says at the end, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And you think Jesus would be like, Hey, thank you very much. But he's not. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want your applause. I want your obedience. And he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, this is the last refuge for the person that doesn't want to take a stand, take a clear stand, take a strong stand. This last refuge is what Ezekiel talked about. When he says, my people come to you as they usually do. They sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, 
You are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. This is the last refuge for the mature disciple. We got to be careful about this. Like, oh, no, I'm not against Jesus. Oh, yeah, I'm all for Jesus. Oh, wasn't that a great sermon? Oh, wasn't that a great Bible study? Wasn't that a great insight that Javier had about the two sons? Wasn't that amazing? And Mike Poisson, you know, helped us to be able to see. what I mean, we, we can go through all of that and still come away not really taking a stand. We just mouth the words that we know sound right. Beautiful, great stuff, wonderful. And so my... my simple application that I want us all to take away from this passage today is take a stand. Put it into practice. Do what Jesus says. Obey. Take a stand that gets noticed. Take a stand that is clear. I'm not saying pick a fight, by the way. Unnecessarily. What I'm saying is take a strong stand. A stand of love, a stand of truth, a stand of service, a stand of selflessness. Take a strong stand. The Holy Spirit, when you pull away your inhibitions, the Holy Spirit, you know, is prompting you of who it is that you need to have that stand with. Make sure that we really do heed Jesus' words. Let's not just say, oh yeah, how great is grace. Let's sing the praises of Jesus. He's like, no, time is not for that. You know what the time is now? This simple thing. Go do what it is that I've called you to do. Amen.